Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your robot observer, speculative fiction, book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This month, it is The Deep by John Crowley, a book from 1975. This is the final book from this Patreon vote, and this is one that was also nominated by a supporter, and I'm glad it got on the ballot, and I am glad that it made the cut. I really loved this book. I've read it before. I have it in a volume called Otherwise, which collects The the Deep along with uh, two other Crowley novels. That's uh, Beasts and Injun Summer. These are all his, his first three novels. Crowley is one of those writers I discovered while I was in the army because the third volume in the Egypt cycle, uh, Demonomania, uh, this book had just come out. I read that actually without realizing that it was part of a series, but I loved it and then did go back and pick up the first two volumes as well, though I have never read the final volume that came out in 2007. I've also never read Crowley's most famous book, Little Big, so maybe those will make it onto a ballot someday. I would certainly love that. I want to say, too, that if you are a Crowley fan and you aren't a supporter on Patreon, Brandon and I covered his short story, Snow, a long time ago now. And I think that probably for both of us, that remains our favorite Patreon story. And I hope you'll be encouraged to help out the network and and check that episode out. But all right, let's let's uh, let's take a deep breath, a big breath, maybe I'll say, and get ready for The Deep. The Deep is a high fantasy story set in an imaginary secondary world that is an idealized version of the high Middle Ages. We'll talk at length about all of that in the next segment. For now, all we need to say is that we're dealing with swords and armor, castles and horses, and kings and vassals. But this world is really small in scale compared to most high fantasy settings, or at least most high fantasy settings that are going to involve political intrigue and a big war, as this book is. There is really only one state, one country in this world, and so there's not even a name for it. There is simply this one kingdom, and then there are the lands outward where uncivilized barbarians dwell. And keeping the kingdom safe from these outsiders is the principal job of the ruling elite. They have fortresses along the border. They also manage a a complex diplomatic system that really makes the the barbarians a part of the kingdom's political system. They're not really outsiders in the end. And this is very much like the way that the the Roman Empire managed its frontier. These barbarians are going to matter for the plot eventually, at least a little bit. But before we get to that, I want to finish going through the setup for this world, the setup of this world. Uh, This ruling elite is feudal. We'll talk more about what that means, too. But it's feudal in the sense that there is a king, but that political power derives from the possession of wealth as much as it does from holding an office or having a title. And in fact, more so from wealth than from holding public office. And wealth means land in this world, and therefore there's a complicated system of laws regulating ownership and inheritance and, and the sale of land as well. They're a warrior class who use their wealth to support small armies, and in that capacity, their their capacity as warriors, they do use titles and they do hold public offices here. And these offices are called protector, uh, that seems to be something like duke, and defender, which seems to be analogous to, to count. These titles and offices, they go with the land, though, and in some sense, then, they're hereditary and de facto rather than de jure, meaning that you don't get them by grant from the public power, right? You're not elected to these positions. You're not appointed to these positions. You have them. You get them simply because you are wealthy enough to have an army. 
And as these titles imply, their function in society, the the reason this wealthy class exists at all, is to defend and protect the rest of the people uh, who are called here the folk as a, a proper noun. The folk are the laboring class, the farmers of various sorts, the fishermen, the tailors and cobblers, the merchants, the artisans and architects, and so on. And of course, right, this is almost everyone in society, though they hardly feature in our imagination of the Middle Ages, or in fantasy novels for that matter, and that is going to be something of a theme here for Crowley. Finally, there's an order of monks, or at least something approximating monks anyway. This is an order of men and women who have left society and and left their old loyalties behind as well, though not completely their old identities, we should say. But they have left society to work as scholars and lawyers and advisors and also as priests. And although some of them do work out in the agricultural regions of this you know, single state here in this setting, most of them dwell in a rather large tower, a monastery tower in the city. That's also a proper noun, by the way. There's only one city in this small-scale setting. And there in this monastery, they're involved in scholarly pursuits that we don't really see much of in, in the story here. Far more, they appear in this story as the arbiters of the law, and indeed the chief of their order is actually called Arbiter. So that is the main division of society, workers, monks, and a warrior elite. But there is one more group that we need to talk about, and this is the Just. The Just is a secret society that is seeking to overthrow the ruling elite, to overthrow the protectors and defenders and the king as well, in order to establish a government that is for, by, and of the people— but they don't have some grand plan to really do this. Instead, they're, they're more like a group of assassins, and each of them has a, a high-level target. And what's more, they use guns. And, and this is a really interesting idea, I think. Uh, where the guns come from, whether they manufacture them themselves, or, or whether the just have gotten them some other way, is one of the, the subtle questions that lurks in the background of the story. And even the word gun throughout the book is capitalized. It also is a proper noun. And while the ruling elite certainly don't want to be killed or to give up their position, they almost don't seem to resent the existence of the just so much as they resent their use of guns. Uh, Indeed, the just are not seen as some new phenomenon. They've existed for as long as anyone can remember, and in some ways are a part of the system, just like the barbarians are a part of the system. Okay, so that is a big chunk of the background, but there is still a little bit more that we need to do. The ruling elite are themselves divided into two factions. These are called Red and Black, and right now the king is a member of the Black faction, but in the not-too-distant past, the king was a member of the Red faction, and there's some political tension about this, and this is what's going to drive the plot. The current king, a member of the Black faction, the current king has no heir, and so when he dies, it's going to be a member of the Red faction who technically will be the next inheritor. And, you know, remember that all of this is thought of in terms of private property and inheritance laws, right? The kingdom is not a public office. King is not public office. This is all about ownership. But even though the king has no heir, the queen now suddenly is pregnant. But the thing is that Everybody knows that the child is not from her husband, the king. It is from someone else. But the king will not publicly acknowledge that. And so this drives the Red Faction to rebel, to decide to take the crown by force, to start a civil war. Now, this is all just really the setup. This war happens quickly, and it's not really what the story is about. Rather, the story is about the intra-faction politics of the new Red Regime and another civil war that's going to result from those intra-faction politics. One of the consequences of this first civil war is that the leaders of the Red Faction die, and this leaves their sons to rule in their place. And and 
these are not middle-aged sons. These are young sons, you know, 20 years old, 25 years old. I mean, some of them might even be teenagers. That's not entirely clear here. And the new young Red King is suspicious of the character who amounts to being our protagonist. And, and this is the protector Red Hand. Now, Red Hand and his family, even though they are not the leaders of the Red Faction and they are not the, the king, they are wealthier than the king, wealthier than the leader of the Red Faction, and, and therefore are more powerful. They can raise a bigger army than the king can. And this was totally normal in the Middle Ages, by the way. But in this fantasy case here, the, the new king wants to get rid of Red Hand somehow, and he especially wants to break up his land holdings so that no single person can inherit all of them and continue to be a, a sort of rival to his power. But Red Hand is the hero of this story, or at least something of the hero of this story. And so this suspicion is false. In fact, Red Hand would love nothing more than to just quit politics altogether and to get back to being a landowner and a soldier. He far prefers his rural estates, or a war camp for that matter, to the court. And we don't ever see the machinations of the king against Red Hand, because all of this comes to a head way sooner than the king had intended. And one thing I should say, too, is that a lot of this is being driven by the leader of the, the black faction, which is now the minority party, who is also young and has inherited his position because of the deaths during this civil war. But he and the king are lovers, and this leader of the black faction is using his role in the king's life to sow dissent in the red faction. And it's pretty clear to us, the readers, that he has bigger plans. He has ulterior motives here. But Red Hand is a dutiful vassal, a dutiful servant here, and he invites the king and his household to a banquet at his rural estate, entirely in good faith. But during the banquet, the king's lover taunts Red Hand about how his father tortured Red Hand's father to death during that civil war. And Red Hand loses his temper. He kills the king's lover, and then he flees with his army. And now, and, and, and simply in order to survive, and simply in order to protect his family, Red Hand has no choice but to overthrow the, the king, right? This is not really just a matter of himself uh, turning himself in to be punished, I, I, I guess. His family would have to be punished for this as well. And this war, this is going to be the real story. There's, of course, a lot more going on here. There's a member of the king's household who is very similar to Red Hand in that he would actually make a good leader. But those qualities mean that he's not ambitious enough or maybe stupid enough uh, to want the job. In the end, there is a war, but it doesn't matter because the king dies. And this means that the heir to the throne is this other member of his household. But even this doesn't matter because in the end, Red Hand is killed by a member of the just. Uh, this is something that we have seen coming in the whole book because we've followed that character, that, that just character uh, around a little bit. And so this whole thing has a tinge of tragic irony. But in the end, the new king marries Red Hand's widow. It turns out that he had fallen in love with her, and, and she with him as well. And so at the end of the book, Crowley flips the whole story on its head by revealing that it had always been, right, the whole time, the story we'd been reading had been about how this minor character became king and married the woman he loved, and we should all be happy for him. And all of this, all of these machinations may sound vaguely familiar to you because most of it is drawn from the history of late medieval England, and really most of it is drawn from plays about that period. The idea of factions with color names can be seen in The Wars of the Roses, where the factions are red and white, and this is the subject of Shakespeare's history plays, uh, Henry VI, parts one through three, and, and Richard III. But much of the intrigue here, much of the actual plot, has a lot more in common with the reign of Edward II the century before, which is something that Shakespeare's predecessor, Christopher Marlowe, wrote about in his play called Edward II. 
It is all great stuff. Crowley is, is riffing on all of it in some fun ways. And coincidentally, too, Brent and I actually just recorded an episode of Hanging Out with a Dream King about the Sandman short story, Men of Good Fortune, which features Shakespeare and Marlowe. So if you like those guys, if you're interested in that, you can check that out as well. All right. That seems like that's the book. And often at this minute mark in the episode, I am, in fact, done recapping the book. But actually, that's only been the A plot. So we still need to talk about the B plot here. And in fact, you may even disagree with the way I've assigned those letters. You may think that I've been talking about the B-plot up to this point, and I would love to have that conversation on the forum for sure. The first character we actually meet in the story is called The Visitor, and he's a robot, a robot of some sort, who is visiting the planet of the deep from somewhere else in space. When he arrives, though, he is damaged, and he doesn't remember who he is, or, or what he is for that matter. And while everyone recognizes that he's not quite normal, they don't have the framework to recognize that he's an artificial person. But because he is an artificial person, because he's a robot, he's quick to learn, and he becomes attached to Red Hand's household. And for some time, actually, he's left at Red Hand's rural estate while Red Hand himself is in the city. And this is actually where we spend a lot of time with Red Hand's wife, and we come to care about her as a character, which is one of the main intersections that all of this has with the A-plot. But once the Second Civil War gets going, the Visitor leaves Red Hand, and he goes off on his own adventure with one of the Just. Uh, This is the member of the Just who's going to kill Red Hand at the end, so that's another way that all of this connects back, the two plots link together. And what's going on here is that the Visitor knows that he is meant for some purpose, but he doesn't know what it is, and he wants to find out. And so he goes on a quest to find the edge of the world where he can meet Leviathan, who lives underneath that world, coiled around its base. And this image here, this image envisions the world of the deep as a kind of spinner top. It's a flat disc uh, with a cone sticking down from it. And we might ask how such a thing is physically possible, how such a world could exist in a speculative world that clearly has robots and spaceship, a, a, a speculative world that clearly is a science fiction world in some way. But that's just not going to matter in this story. The Visitor succeeds. He finds Leviathan, and Leviathan tells him who he is and what he's for, and also what this world is. None of this is entirely clear, by the way. But the idea is that this is an artificial world that is populated by humans from Earth. Or really, what I should say is that it's populated by human embryos that were brought from Earth. And that is a really interesting science fiction idea, but Crowley doesn't remove this from the realm of fantasy here. For one, what is Leviathan? It's some creature that lives in space? And why is it named for a creature in the Old Testament? And in fact, that's where Crowley takes us. We actually get the book of Job here, basically. Leviathan explains that this was all done. This world was created and it was populated. This was all done by some other powerful being. Now, he doesn't say God, but that's the idea. Or, well, maybe that's the idea anyway. And the visitor is actually the recorder. He's an artificial being sent by this other powerful being, not God, or maybe God, to report back to him about the state of affairs on the deep so that he can intervene if he needs to. And he has intervened before, it turns out. The just are his direct intervention. They are a later invention. There's something he's created for this world after it's gotten going. It's an intervention designed to maintain some sort of balance or something by introducing an element that can kill the ruling elite. But in the past, even before he made the just, there have been big wars that have been the result of his direct intervention and so on. And there's a real sense that that's what the visitor is actually here to do. But now that he knows his purpose, the visitor decides he doesn't like it and that this is not what he wants to do. And he's presented with the opportunity here to get into his spaceship and return. 
But in the end, he decides to stay, decides to be a person here on the deep and to just build a, a life for himself rather than to be a, a servant, to be a tool of this other being. And so he returns to the kingdom just as this second civil war is winding up. And this is the context in which Red Hand is killed by the just. And this is what brings the book to an end. All right, that was a long recap. I guess they always are when there's a lot of world building to do. But let's just move right into our themes and motifs segment now. There are two things I want to talk about here. The second is this business with Leviathan. But I do want to start first by talking about the social divisions of the the kingdom, the, the only state, the single state that we get here. This division into three segments, the, the ruling elite, the monks and the workers, or, or warriors, monks and workers, this is something that Crowley has modeled after an idealized high medieval society. High medieval, the high middle ages, uh, this refers to the period between roughly the year 1000 and roughly either 1300 or, or 1350. Uh, that kind of depends on which scholar you're talking to there, though I'll say I'm partial to 1350 myself. Not a hill I'm going to die on, though. After this period is the late Middle Ages, and before this period is the early Middle Ages, which is what I have worked on as a historian, the early Middle Ages. The high Middle Ages, though, is the classic period of the Middle Ages. It's what most people envision when they think of the Middle Ages. Uh, we're talking knights and castles, Gothic cathedrals, Arthurian literature, and the Crusades. And you'll sometimes also see this period labeled the Feudal Age, and that's also something Crowley is clearly thinking about here, and we will get to that. But I do really want to start with these social divisions. This social division, this tripartite social division, this was an idea that was expressed by some high medieval thinkers, uh, people who divided high medieval society into those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. And this was a system that's, that's often called the three orders. And that's quite clearly what we have in the deep. It's also what we see among the Mimbari in Babylon 5, but that is for an entirely other podcast. So I want to talk about this medieval idea, but I do first want to be clear that it is an ideal. It's not a reality. It also wasn't the only ideal. It wasn't the only idealized model that was going around the High Middle Ages. There were other thinkers who divided society into two parts or four parts or seven parts, and those divisions also were idealized and not a reflection of what society was actually like. But the idea in this division into those who pray, those who fight, and those who work is that everyone is doing something on behalf of themselves, but also something that is on behalf of everyone else. Uh, the idea is, right, that it is a mutually beneficial social division. Those who pray are working for the salvation of everyone. Those who fight are working for the protection of everyone. Though protection from whom is a question that we're going to take up in just a minute. While those who work are feeding and clothing and sheltering everyone. And you can see how this functions, right? Workers are only able to work because they're protected by the fighters, but the fighters are also only able to fight and protect because the workers feed them uh, and also make their weapons and their armor and care for their horses and so on. And the clerics pray and that gets everyone into heaven. But again, they can only do that because they are fed and clothed by the workers and also because they're protected by the warriors. A fundamental part of this idea, of course, is that people know their place and that people are content with their place. And really, this means workers, right? Because they're the ones who are getting less to eat and have only one set of clothes and live in houses that aren't comfortable and also have fewer legal rights. And, and sometimes, in fact, no legal rights and are, in fact, semi-free, servile workers, more or less owned by someone who fights or someone who prays. But the contentment of this exploited and often servile peasantry is a huge part of the mythos of this ideal. And it's something that we find a lot of in fantasy literature and also a lot of conservative political ideologies. 
Uh, we can see this, for example, in The Shire of the Lord of the Rings, but it is also a huge part of G.K. Chesterton's vision of the Middle Ages, and it's therefore a huge part of his political philosophy that is opposed to the disruption of industrial capitalism, the way that the invention of capitalism in high modernity broke apart the system of the three orders. But this fantasy completely ignores the gross exploitation of almost everyone by a very small class of landed elites. And it's this exploitation that really defines this era's social divisions. And this is something that Crowley takes up here in the deep. He does this by introducing some malcontents, the, the just, who want to assassinate members of that landed elite in some effort to free themselves and, and free others of their class, free the workers. One of the elements of all of this is that protectors and defenders don't act as protectors or defenders. And indeed, one of the warrior characters tells us that those titles originally were protector of the folk and defender of the folk, but that the of the folk part has been dropped. Uh, the folk have been forgotten. The mutual social obligation of the landed elite here is being overlooked now. They're taking, they're, they're receiving something without giving anything back in return. But part of this, too, is simply that the origins of this social system, the origins of the three orders, is lost to these people. They don't know what the folk needed protecting from in the first place that has justified the presence of a warrior class. Because even though it seems like their job is to protect the folk from barbarian outsiders, those barbarian outsiders only enter into the picture when there's a civil war among those protectors and defenders. In fact, when Crowley reveals this ignorance to us, one of the warrior characters assumes that this ancient version of these titles indicates that they were meant to protect and defend the folk from the just, because he knows that they aren't defending them from the outsiders, that he knows they're not defending them from barbarians. And so really, now, it seems that the people from whom the folk need protecting and defending are those very protectors and defenders. In other words, this warrior class, who maybe once perhaps had a legitimate function protecting the kingdom— now just fight each other because they know that they're supposed to fight and there isn't actually anyone else to fight. But if they don't fight, then they don't deserve the most food. They don't deserve the big houses. They don't deserve the nice clothes and so on. So they fight each other in order to preserve the three orders. And this is unjust. It's entirely unjust. And that is where the just come in. And I'll finish this part up by quoting a nun who, who describes the just or explains the just to the visitor really at the beginning of the book. And here's what she says. She says that the just are warriors for the folk. They make war on the protectors who own the land to take it from them and return it to the folk. And there is a lot loaded into the barrel of that word return there. All right, I was going to do a bit here about how this question of what the warrior class is for, about how that parallels developments in the, the historical, the real world, high middle ages. It was going to be a bit on feudalism and uh, what some scholars call the feudal revolution. But because I've run long already, and also because I'm sure that we'll have the opportunity to do that in the future, I mean, it's not as if there's a dearth of high fantasy books out there. So I'm going to skip that part that I had planned here. And so I'll leave off this part of the segment simply by saying that as much as I myself am personally skeptical of of industrial capitalism. I mean, I, I am the co-host of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, after all. And even though I have a Tolkien tattoo, I appreciate the way that Crowley pushes back against this glamorizing of merry old England, uh, the way that he pushes back against the airbrushing of the exploitation of the high Middle Ages, uh, really in order to present it as this Catholic golden age when everyone got along and society was perfectly static and perfectly harmonized. I love that Crowley pushes back against that. There just never was such a thing. And, and honestly, reading Chesterton's histories, reading Chesterton's biographies of the medieval world, it feels a lot more like reading a fantasy novel than reading The Deep does. 
I'll say one more thing about this before moving on to the other topic. And I know that's like five times now I've said I'm leaving this topic behind and have failed to deliver on that. But the last thing I really do want to say here is simply that if you are interested in this idea of the three orders, you might check out a book called The Three Orders by Georges Duby. Uh, This book is 40 years old now, and scholars have pushed back against it pretty hard, but it is a fun read. It's a great place to start thinking about the high Middle Ages. And I have mentioned Georges Duby on the podcast before. I guess that must have been when we did A Song for Our Bone. But all right, we really now can leave that behind and get into the second topic, which is the metaphysics of this world. The story opens with a robot crash landing on a planet that turns out to be a small and self-contained idealization of the high Middle Ages. And by itself, this is a fun intersection of science fiction and fantasy, and it could even feel a little bit like a Star Trek episode. But of course, it raises questions about the speculative world that we don't normally ask of fantasy novels, such as, where is this planet? And what is its relationship to and and with Earth? Are these people humans? Or are we the readers anthropomorphizing people that Crowley actually envisions as aliens? When is this happening? If these are humans, and by the way, they very clearly are, then how did they get here? Are we meant to understand that all of this is some distant future in which humans have colonized the stars, but maybe some or maybe all of those colonies have lost spaceflight and even lost a historical memory of this, of of how they came to be on this planet? And as we read, we do begin to see hints of answers to these types of questions. And that is all we're going to get, though. Hints. And, And this is something I love about the book. The question even of what history is is something that Crowley has our principal monk character explore here. The monks are busy excavating an ancient floor mosaic that seems actually to tell the origin story of their society uh, in in, in pictures, and this is fantastic. Uh, There's also a legend that all the people today are descended from just 52 people, and later we get a hint that this is literally true. Actually, that's maybe slightly more than a hint if we believe Leviathan at the end. And what we're told there is that this planet was colonized by a sort of seed ship that grew people and plants and animals from frozen embryos or, or, or something like that. But then this all falls apart. Throughout the book, we also see that the society has a geocentric model of its solar system. They think they live on a flat disk with a spindle beneath it and that a monster lives there coiled around it. And when the visitor hears this, he goes to investigate. He travels to the edge of the world. And when he's saying this, when he's saying that that's what he's going to go do, we think that we're dealing with a poor model of the universe and that all of this is not actually what the visitor is going to find, that this is just a metaphor. But It is actually what he finds. This really is a flat disk with an edge and a monster living beneath it in the deep. So what kind of story are we actually in? On top of this, the the monster, Leviathan, speaks with the visitor and explains some of the cosmology of this speculative world. There is somewhere, a thousand years journey away, a creator. At least the creator of this world, if not of other things. But this creator who made the visitor to check on this creation and to take corrective action if required. And while this person, this being, this brother, as Leviathan calls him, created this world, he didn't populate it with new creations. These he prod as seeds, two by two in an ark, a seed ship, right? And some of the imagery that Leviathan employs here seems to be describing the use of solar sails. So there's a real blend here of of scientific and engineering cosmology with a pre-modern Abrahamic cosmology that just leaves us wondering what is real and what isn't. And as I've said before, it also leaves us asking, what type of story we're in to begin with? Are we in a story with seed ships and solar sails? Or are we in a story in which God and Leviathan exist in outer space? Or are we in a medieval high fantasy story? And the answer seems to be all of the above. 
And I was curious about how this move, about how this book had been received by recent readers. So I checked out some reviews on Goodreads, which is something I've not done, actually, since we did Le Guin way back at the original batch of episodes when Atov launched its own solar sail seed ship. Though at the time, that was something I thought was going to be a regular feature of the show. It just hasn't worked out that way. But what I found on Goodreads is that a large chunk of readers seem to have real anxiety about the lack of clear answers to these questions, like an intense anxiety about not knowing what type of story this was and about never understanding who the visitor was. And there were a lot of one and two and three star reviews that complained about this. Uh, and, And maybe on that note, I'll just transition us into our strengths and weaknesses segment right now. Because for me, this was not a flaw of the book. It is a feature of the book. This ambiguity is really one of the strengths of this story. It's not one of its weaknesses. But, you know, as I said earlier, I am the co-host of the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, so I'm almost contractually obligated to say that. Another complaint that I saw on Goodreads, though, is one that I do agree with, and that is the issue with character names. They're all red something or black something or something black or something red or red something sun. You get the picture. It is very confusing, at least for the first 30 pages or so, I guess. I mean, maybe even longer than that. I struggled with it, but it wasn't a barrier for me, but it does turn out that it is a barrier for a lot of readers. And even though it wasn't a barrier for me, it was a frustration for sure. And I think Crowley could have made a better choice here. I get that he was trying to indicate everyone's factional membership here without having to explain it. And that if he hadn't done that, we'd have been complaining about not knowing who was on which team or forgetting and so on. But it was dizzying nonetheless. I just don't think it was the best move. But I want to finish on a high note here. I mean, a really high note here and talk about the two greatest features of The Deep, the prose and the world building. Crowley is a master wordsmith. His sentences and his paragraphs are just magical. And I could read them all day, but that almost seems dangerous. It almost seems like I would lose myself in in his sentences and paragraphs. And I just want to give a few examples of his gorgeous writing and, and talk about his world building as well, which is very much wrapped up in his descriptive work, as we'll see. This first passage that I want to read is a description of the aftermath of the First Civil War. Here it is. Along the wind-scoured drum's edge, sterile land where the broken mountains began a long slide toward the low atlands. It was winter still. The snow was a bitter demon that filled the wagon ruts, made in mud and frozen now, and blew out again like sand. Cloak-muffled guards paced with pikes. Horsemen grimly exercised their mounts on the beaten ground. The wind snapped the pennons on their staves, snatched the barks of the camp dogs from their mouths and carried from Forgetful's walls suddenly the war veals surrender song, and blew it around the camp with strange alteration. And I just love the vivid physicality of this scene. We can feel that wind and feel that cold, and we can hear the surrender signal, this viol song. The adjectives are desperate, scoured, sterile, broken, bitter, beaten. And the very landscape itself is setting the mood here of this scene, right? And it is phenomenal. The second passage that I want to read here is a description of the monastery in the, the city. The Tower of Inviolable may be the highest place in the world. No one has measured, but no one knows a higher place. There are many rooms in the Tower, scholars' rooms, put there less for the sublimity of the height than in the Order's belief that men who spend their lives between pages should at least climb stairs for their health. Because Inviolable has no need for defense, the Tower is pierced with broad windows, and the windows look everywhere, down the forest to the lake in the center of the world, a blue smudge of mist on summer mornings. Outward over the downs where the river wanderer branches into a hundred water fingers, to the drum and farther still. But when the scholars put down their pens and look up, their gaze is inward. The vistas they see are in time, not space. This is one of my favorite passages in all of fantasy literature. 
It is a beautiful description of what is clearly a beautiful place. But the emphasis is not on that beauty. It's really on what it's like to be a part of it, what it's like to live here. And in doing that, Crowley builds up his world through a simple physical description that, in terms of storytelling, serves only to set the scene for a conversation that's going to advance the plot, like just one paragraph later. But we learn so much about the order of monks in this world, right? We learn where they live, what they do, what they prioritize. And without ever even saying so, Crowley tells us that the monks sit at the tables or or, or desks near the walls with their backs to the windows so that the light will illuminate what they are reading. The windows are for letting light in, not for gazing at vistas. And this is a workplace, right? It's not a work of art. And this is how Crowley builds his world. There are very few RPG manual style passages that are just full of exposition. Everything here is inference. Everything is suggestion. And it's also spare. Because we aren't given explanation, it's very easy to overlook the importance of details that Crowley is only going to mention once, maybe twice, uh, but the next time he does mention them will be in 50 pages, and you'll have forgotten the first time. This is a type of world-building that requires active reading. It requires you to be asking questions while you read, not merely passively receiving information. And it is demanding, but it's my favorite type of reading, and this is my favorite type of book. Well, that brings my review to a close, a long one this time. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs and also the strengths and the weaknesses that I focused on, but especially on what I left out. And and I left out a lot. I mean, a whole section of my outline here. But also, somehow, I managed to do a longer-than-usual episode about a book that contains Leviathan, opens with an epigraph from the Book of Job, and has an entire conversation about creation without ever talking about any passages from scripture. I would be supremely happy if you would come to the forum and start a conversation with me about that aspect of this book. Where does this book fit into the intellectual history of Jewish and Christian theology? What is the cosmology of this world? Why was it created? And why does its creator meddle in its affairs by starting wars and equipping assassins with guns? Does Crowley have our own world in mind as he writes this story? There's a lot more to talk about, and I hope to see you there. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next time, we're going to start a new batch of books from a Patreon poll. This is going to be Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke, which came in first on that poll. And if you'd like to participate in those polls and check out our discussion of Crowley's short story, Snow, please join us at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. But until next time, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.